0: Aloud. Conversations on the Leading Edge of Knowledge and Discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we are going to revisit the counterculture. My guest is Matthew Ingram. He is a music journalist and his newest, most scintillating book is called Retreat: How the counterculture invented wellness. Matthew is in London, so now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Matthew. It's a real pleasure to be with you today.
1: Hi, Jeffrey. Thank you very
0: much for having me along. We're going to be talking about the counterculture, and I'm fascinated to have this conversation with you. Uh, When we think of the counterculture, I lived through it in the San Francisco Bay Area when I was a graduate student at uh, Berkeley. But I'm guessing, Matthew, that you, you were probably born after the counterculture. So when you look at it, uh, you have the advantage of seeing it uh, through the eyes of what one might call almost a total stranger.
1: That's right. Um, and in fact, uh, some people I've spoken to have said that I have a possibly an idealized vision of it, um, that the, the, the research that features in the book is, is more in depth than, than most people would have experienced in their day-to-day um, dealings with it. What drew your
0: interest to this particular period of history?
1: Well, as you can see behind me, uh, I'm a record collector. Um, and I've always been interested in um, the 60s as such and also the counterculture in the 70s. Um, and I, I think it grew through that. Um, I discovered uh, a, n- a number of um, health methodologies that could be seen as relating to that. So transcendental meditation through the Beatles and macrobiotic food again through the Beatles and then um, primal scream therapy, obviously. And uh, anti I came across a lot of R.D. Lang references. And I, I considered that, that there seemed to be some connection between these wellness methodologies and the counterculture. And that was the starting point.
0: Your career has also been as a music journalist, and I think it's fair to say the 60s and the 70s were known for uh, the popular music that was produced in that era. That's right.
1: And in in terms of um, the mark of the consciousness explorations on that music, there's a sort of luminous quality where you can still appreciate, for instance, in the music of the Beatles. There's a kind of timeless, eternal quality to it. And I think that relates to um, the countercultures explorations with Eastern philosophy and, and, and
0: consciousness
1: so uh, it's something that you can hear as well as
0: research Now I had the opportunity back uh, in the day when I did Uh, radio programs on KPFA at Berkeley, uh, and uh, my early work in television to interview Theodore Rozak, who sort of made that phrase, the counterculture, very popular through his book, The Making of the Counterculture. And I know you focus on his work pretty extensively in your own book.
1: It's amazing, Jeffrey. I know that you've had a lot of experience. And, and, and Matt, I know you mentioned to me that you, met, you knew Ram Dass, you, you met Alan Ginsberg and the like. So when you told me that you, uh, that you knew Theodore Roszak, that was remarkable. But yes, I mean, his, um, his book, The Making of the a, of a Counterculture, has a, a lot of very incisive um, critique and very clean and clear awareness of, of the field as it was going on, perhaps because he was maybe a little bit older um, and sort of was surveying it almost as though he was, these were slightly younger than, than, than him. But um, yes, yeah, so a, a lot of terms and a lot of um, uh, conceptual work
0: from that book was, was very useful for my,
1: for my book Retreat.
0: I believe you even described uh, Rosak's book as having a devastating critique of mainstream culture. I think the very
1: fact that he had the, the sympathy and the empathy to explore in depth all of the modalities um, and techniques that were being used in the counterculture showed that, you know, he had a sympathy with those aims. Um, he, he He's um, very much against the kind of, I think it was a, a reasonably current um, idea at the time that um, of the uh, sort of citadel, the establishment becoming, you know, problematic and uh, so his interest probably in the counterculture culture culture stems
0: from that to my recollection the, the main impetus for the counterculture sort of emerging out of uh, the quiet generation of the 1950s was uh, the war in Vietnam because people all of a sudden saw that our mainstream culture politically, economically, uh, was pushing what seemed to most people, uh, in, certainly of the college student generation that I was part of, it, it seemed like, you know, grossly unjust and wrong that a great nation like the uh, United States and its allies would be uh, imposing warfare on a third world country in Vietnam. Something just uh, grated against us. It made us uh, think that, uh, well, there was a very famous phrase at the time, never trust anyone over 30. It, it was a, a, an enormous period of disillusionment with with the mainstream. But, but your focus has been a little different. Your focus has been on how out of that disillusionment Disillusionment came a, a a new vision of a higher human potential.
1: There was a sense of a disenchantment with um, the the tech the the methods of the status quo, and I guess Vietnam is is a is the perfect example of that um and but but rather than uh, but, but against the background of say the holocaust or the stalinist purges i think there was a sense that um this the 60s generation um took it upon themselves to transform themselves Rather than try and tear down the establishment. And, and that is the, well, a, a bit of both, obviously, but that, that sort of self transformation, that sort of personal politics and, and how that feeds into the high, the human potential movement it is, is the story of the wellness story of the
0: counterculture. It's hard to talk about the counterculture without bringing up Timothy Leary and LSD. He seemed to be a, a very central uh, figure uh, for what was going on, certainly a, a lightning rod of sorts.
1: There's a sense as well that the uh, that LSD was the, was the fuel that was poured onto the fire. Um, so you have obviously all these, you know, injustices in terms of um, feminism, um, racism, obviously, and also with, um, you know, the, the states' uh, treatment of, of Vietnam. Um, and I think LSD was the agent uh, which um, almost fueled the, uh, the uprising, certainly something like 1968. It, it's, it's very tempting to look at that. The, the chaos and the disorder of, of, that I- of that year, it is very tempting to see that against the background of LSD and obviously, you know, Leary being the, the sort of Pied Piper of, of that whole movement.
0: At the time, I think you had, uh, I, I'm guessing, millions of young people taking LSD and experiencing states of consciousness uh, very hard to distinguish from uh, the classical, mystical experience
1: it was what opened people to Eastern religion and um, sort of other, newer newer home homemade techniques like um, um, sensory deprivation and flotation tanks um, and you know to open people's palates even to different sorts of food um, and I think it's it's thats the sort of the deconstructive agent if you like it's the the point at which um,
0: which really marks that era. One of the intriguing things uh, I noticed in your book is uh, a comment that uh, there has always been a counterculture. It wasn't unique to the 1960s. Even going back to ancient Egypt, there were countercultures. That's right.
1: Well, it's, it's one of the theories of um, a guy called Are You Serious? Um, and who wrote a book, um, counterculture from Abraham to Acid House. So his idea is that uh, Abraham is the, the original, um, rebel, countercultural rebel, but that, that strand, and it obviously builds to a peak in, in the 60s, but he see, he sees it going right one through glam rock and then later into Acid House, which was obviously from, that was my experience of, of a countercultural impulse was, was raving in the 90s. And indeed, that's probably where, my first interest in these sort of things grew up. Um, So yes, it's tempting to see it as a a thing that goes on forever. However, in the book, I take a very, I take a sort of a shorter counterculture in which I, starting with Ginsburg reading Howl, in I think it's 1956, and then Ginsburg being thrown off Bob Dylan's Rolling Thunder tour, which is kind of the mid 70s. So that's the window I use, because I think that's a, a strong, a strong window.
0: Well, starting with Allen Ginsberg is, uh, to me, a very good place to begin. Uh, And his generation, they were really known as the Beatniks, the Beat Generation. Uh, They came before the hippies. And, uh, you know, they were influential in the 1950s, but nothing like the counterculture of of the 1960s. And yet you could say they gave birth to it.
1: Well, there's certain characters who are... constant presence so certainly ginsberg is as important um into the beats as he is to the hippies i mean he's um i think more than anybody else he he was responsible for popularizing uh, meditation um, and bringing the ideas of the vedanta and buddhism to to the america and to the, to the uk to the west um, and so he he's a, he runs through it but also Kerouac is 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 visible in the hippie era, even as a kind of sort of grumpy sort of Republican figure. Um, but uh, and then someone like, for instance, Ken Kesey describes himself as being neither a beatnik nor a hippie, because he's sort of right in the middle. So you know, it's a pretty even continuum, I think.
0: The Beatniks were known for uh, having an interest in Zen Buddhism, and uh, there were scholars, I think, like D.T. Suzuki, who, who were and Alan Watts as well, who were coming across and and translating Buddhist texts and and talking about them. So back when I first was an undergraduate in 1965 at the University of Wisconsin, people were starting to talk about Buddhism. It, it hadn't become a mass movement the way I think it is today, but it was certainly a topic, a conversation.
1: Yes, yeah, so Suzuki, as you as you correctly pointed out, was was one of the very major conduits of, of, the, of those ideas. And he sometimes, um, today, he's sometimes describes as sort of having a sort of esatz uh, version of Buddhism, which actually isn't really fair. I and mean, it's very consistent with Taoist ideas and, 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 and Zen Buddhism is, of course, uh, a mixture of, of, of Taoism and Buddhism. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a, Chogum Chungpa, the Tibetan is another very important, um, conduit of, uh, those ideas. And there's a sense, um, that a bunch of very, um, in some cases, in the, the case of the Tibetans, um, disinherited, um, and, Sort of because obviously subject to the uh, the Chinese uh, cultural um, takeover, um, the the colonization. um, the Tibetans were obviously came to to America to uh, to escape that. Um, But as well, there's there's a bunch of very ambitious Indians and Japanese people who who saw America in a sense almost like a market. Um, that's not to, to weaken the eye to sort of weaken the sense of the ideas in any way but you know there was a very uh not aggressive but um uh, an accurate targeting of targeting of america
0: chogium trumpa somebody i met somebody i interviewed uh as i recall he was chain smoking throughout the interview and i asked him at one point uh, about it you know you're talking about Health and wellness and higher consciousness. And here you are chain smoking. And, and he said to me, well, when you're enlightened, you can do anything. <laughs> and, uh, that struck me as, um, inauthentic. And, um, I know in your book, you point out that many of these figures had very, very deep psychological, uh, problems, even as they are urging the culture toward uh, what i think of even today is higher consciousness
1: yes it's regrettable that uh, a, a number of the the gurus um were uh, took it upon themselves to sleep with their uh with their students which was very regrettable um but uh, i don't think it was all of them but it was you know it was a, a great part of them even maharishi, mahesh maharishi yogi there's allegations about about him um and uh, Chogram Trumpa who you bring up, he he was all, all, taking a lot of LSD as well. At, at one point, uh, he describes it as a um, as a kind of a study of uh, a study of non attachment. He sort of says it's a super samsara, so it's a kind of like uh, reflective samsara. But uh, you know, his whole idea of um, of uh, what they called crazy, what he called crazy wisdom, as I'm sure he probably told you himself. Was the, um, was the idea that you in a sort of tantric way, you transcended um, the everyday life through attachment. So you, you got drunk and you came out the other side and you saw it for what it was, rather than the sort of standard um, Hindu ascetic sense of uh, non-attachment where you, you simply don't drink or don't have sex for that for that matter.
0: Now, you used an interesting term, super-samsara. Uh, I don't recall uh, Trungpa mentioning that uh, term, but now, could you define that? Samsara is is sort of uh, another word for illusion, I think.
1: That's right. I mean, I think it was uh, uh, probably in the realms of self-justification. Um, I think he, he was um, probably trying to claim that um, he was able by taking lsd to to um you know objectify the condition of samsara but i think it's a kind of a complicated uh, self-justification he he did a very similar things with alcohol as well which he you know he he insisted that you know that d- drinking was was part of his sadhana you know um so i, I think he was pretty much willing to say anything
0: unfortunately you point out that many of these other figures uh, had similar problems. I believe Jack Kerouac uh, died of alcoholism, as, as I recall, and uh, Allen Ginsberg, uh, you point out his mother committed suicide, I believe, who was severely mentally ill, uh, and, and that affected him uh, from his early days. Uh, Ram Das spent thousands and thousands of dollars on psychotherapy uh, Timothy Leary described himself as as a psychopath
1: towards the sort of mid 60s I think that the uh, the subject matter of of um, altered states splintered away from the wellness preoccupations so um the, uh, the idea of consciousness studies, I think, you know, what Charles Tart might describe as, you know, auto states of consciousness. I think that was a, as a sort of an invention of Leary's in a way. I think in the first sense, a lot of people who were investigating, um, psychotherapy, obviously, but also LSD were doing it on a therapeutic basis. Um, and certainly, uh, you know, uh, g- Ginsburg was a what you might call a therapy junkie. I mean, he was obsessed with um, you know getting to the bottom of his, um, his his emotional problems. I think, unfortunately, he actually ended up at one point in the bug house, what he's what he calls the lunatic asylum, um, where he thought finally, ah, this is great. Now we're going to get to the bottom of all my troubles, and was extremely disappointed by you know the attendants and the doctors who he just didn't seem to have any respect for whatsoever. So uh, he then, I think that sort of perpetuated him on, on, his, on his search for, for these answers. But, and Kerouac as well was a, was a terrible mess. I think a lot of it was to do with people seeking. The seeking was being driven by wellness in that sense. That was the big question was how to solve these emotional problems, how to, how to make themselves feel better, less alienated.
0: And really under the impression based on a lot of personal experience that LSD does take you to a place, you could call it a state of enlightenment, where you're really detached from your ego. You're able to look at your life very dispassionately. And of course, because it's your own life, you're looking at it in, in great detail. And, and you sort of can see yourself sort of through the eyes of God in a way you, you can laugh at, at the whole cosmic game as I think Stan Groff wrote a book by that name. Uh, but there is another uh, thread to, to the whole uh, counterculture, and, and it has to do with wellness, the idea that uh, uh, it, wellness is something more than simply being free of disease.
1: The angle that I take in the book, and it was really something that I sort of deduced through the um, the studies of, of all these various disciplines and seeing the of cause and effect and seeing the experiences of people was that certainly in, in my theory um i see um sickness as as an instructive message um it's the, it's the the most obvious message that we get from what you might call the self you know the, the god of the philosophers um so um And I think that that makes a lot of sense in terms of non-attachment. So all those things that we do to ourselves as attachments, so drinking or smoking or, you know, um, eating addictive food, um, for instance, um, all of these have a negative feedback on our health. And so, you know, I think that 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 worked as a consistent model for me to understand a lot of these uh, situations in the counterculture.
0: People in the counterculture, many different theorists, for example, were trying to redefine the whole notion of what it meant to be healthy, what it meant to be sick. And uh, part of it was based on the thought, I think, that that mainstream culture itself was very sick. So that if you are uh, functioning, a high-functioning person within mainstream culture, you're you're taking on that sickness. And people who are diagnosed as ill from the perspective of the mainstream may actually be experiencing a healthy rebellion. I I think this sort of thinking was to some extent behind the anti-psychiatry movement, which was also a a significant component of the counterculture." That's
1: right. I think um I mean uh R. D. Lang had these his famous maxim that it's um that uh, mental illness it should be about um break through and not break down. Uh, and there's a sense which is a kind of a Jungian sense of individuation, which is obviously um in his therapy, um, Jung would pretty much take people to the to the edge of madness. And he would all would reflect at some point, there would be a kind of compensatory drive that came to focus and would reassemble the personality, you know, in its, in its, in its form. So there's a kind of sense that, you know, the ego breaks down and is reassembled. And I think that you, this is obviously what, you know, people try to achieve in LSD psychotherapy. And and to some, some degrees, you know, it it can, can very work in those,
0: those situations lsd uh, in the early days even in the 1950s there was a lot of experimentation with lsd as uh, an antidote to alcoholism it appeared to be a very uh, uh, favorable uh, treatment i think even today it's still used
1: possibly in a in a last resort i think it can be you know and used in lots of situations um, I, I it was quite uh, difficult to to write the book and interview all these marvelous figures of the 60s who were so enthusiastic about it um but i sort of always had in the back of my mind that you know they were in a sense the the, the survivors of the thing i think you don't tend to be uh, able to go and interview 85 year olds who uh, had negative uh, reactions or obviously we 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 all know about you know the casualties of the counterculture, but no, I mean um, the uh, Alcoholics um, Associate alcohol, uh, Anonymous was was very much, um, you know, there was a great interest in NSD in LSD there, um, and you know the the Sasquatchian uh, experiments by Osmond and Hoffer, um, they were um, you know unanimously um, in favour. Of uh, of the effectiveness of it, although unfortunately, apparently it was quite difficult to actually reproduce their experiments. So there's uh, there's a sort of question mark over it. I think you know, and I've known people who've who've tried it, alcoholics who, who who have tried it, and it hasn't hasn't really helped them. But I think you know, it can it can work. I'm sure. I think in com- in combination with therapy, I, I think it could be very effective.
0: Well, another. Uh, focus on uh, wellness that's certainly associated with the counterculture and is still very vibrant today is the emphasis on yoga and meditation. Uh, I remember in in the 1960s when uh, yoga teachers and meditation teachers were very rare. There were maybe a few in places like New York City, but the rest of the country uh, you really had to look hard and and far and wide to find a good teacher of yoga or meditation and now it seems that practically every strip mall has a yoga studio
1: yes it's amazing the uh, the explosion of both of them and and, and really fantastic um, in the book uh, I tend to I dis- distinguish between the uh, different sorts of yoga different sorts of meditation so um, for instance, I, I have a sort of a, a working definition of uh, etheric meditation and integral meditation. So, for instance, something like the use of the mantra is very much a kind of a, in a sense, an ego dissolution um, technique. So, the, and it's no surprise that the uh, the uh, the meditation techniques that that were gaining currency in the '60s were very much you know into that ego dissolution sense. So. Transcendental meditation, with its use of the mantra, and also the Hari Krishnas with, with the use of that of the mantra there. But then, sort of creeping in more, there's a sense of of what I, I call sort of integral meditation. So, for instance, um, vipassana, where you're very much, you know, scanning and responding to the body, you're and uh, you know, listening to your emotions, feeling your bodily pain. It seems to be a meditation form of meditation which is in the opposite direction. Uh, more about, uh, integral or, you know, uh, dare I say it, sort of egoic concerns, you know, healthy egoic concerns in, in, in the, the way Jung would term it. But actually, yoga, as, as far as I was reading of the material, um, or Hatha yoga, as, 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 as we, I know, sure, we both, you know, are aware, aware of it. Um, there's precious little of it, or there's not a huge amount of evidence of it being practiced, you know, at the height of the counterculture. Um, certainly it was there. But I don't think it was had the same sort of cultural currency, and certainly the study of the Vedanta that I've done um, seems to me t- sort of to posit it again as something as being an, an integral, uh, an integral technique. So, for instance, when Prudence Faro Burns um, freaks out at uh, Rishikesh in the Maharish, Mahesh Maharishi's compound, she's been meditating for, for for days and days, eighteen hours a day, um, and he. Um, He advises her to do yoga to bring herself down, and again, something that Jung did. Jung did yoga to bring himself down, not to send himself up. So, uh, but yes, I mean those those two things, meditation and yoga, were 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 absolutely uh, have really entered the culture at, at that point in time.
0: Well, you've mentioned Carl Jung several times, and and he's an interesting figure. I think many people would consider him uh, an enormous inspiration for the counterculture. Uh, I remember in my undergraduate days in in college, uh, Jung was never taught. Uh, I don't think even today he's taught very much at all in within academic institutions, and yet uh he's regarded as one of the most influential psychotherapists of the of the twentieth century, some people would say one of the most influential thinkers of the twentieth century uh uh, so he's kind of, on the one hand, a, a godfather of uh, the consciousness movement and to some degree the counterculture, and, and yet I gather he was also quite critical of it.
1: Yes, he was very critical of, of LSD. Um, he was savagely critical. Um, he um, he was, for instance, uh, there's a guy, uh, Al Hubbard, who was called sort of Captain Trips, who was one of the first is frequently described as this Johnny Appleseed of LSD who went around introducing everybody to it um, Leary I think no not not Leary that was a that was a different introduction but but yeah, he, he popularized it and he actually um, wrote to Jung um, asking his opinion um, giving him a sort of a fantastic appraisal of it and Jung was uh, disgusted. Um, and described it to another someone who who wrote to him from Stanley uh, uh, Sydney Cohen's clinic. H- his assistant Betty Eisner wrote to Jung, and and, and Jung said it is, is an, a sat's religion. Um, so he, but I think that reflects. I think that his um, his experience of the self or his uh, um, was. Something that he essentially came by by honest honest means. So he had a kind of a, a you know a psychotic breakdown of his own, and I think um, the the states that he entered um, would be uh, familiar to uh, people talking about LSD. But uh, I think the, the the main difference was that Jung sort of struggled his way up to the top of the mountain rather than taking the cable car which is a familiar you know metaphor that we all know but then um once he was at the top of the mountain i think when you're on lsd you come down the cable car and i think jung spent a number of years trying to piece himself back together again from this uh, exp- you know exposure to the self so uh, he's um Yes, he 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 was uh, very um, and even even in uh, you know the use of his the techniques that he uses in analytical psychology like active imagination, he was very um, careful to warn people about uh, the dangers uh, of them. And his his big maxim that I sort of quote was is that he says uh, generally I find it a, a good idea not to identify with the self. We all all know Jung as the the figure of the collective unconscious and what have you, but but really he was quite Adlerian in in many senses. He was about individuation is the creation of of a healthy ego, not the disillusion of the ego.
0: Well, speaking of the self, uh, it seems to be a core concept uh, that has to do with the counterculture in the sense that people began this quest for self-knowledge. But it, it didn't take us very far because in the 1980s you had this critique of uh, the so-called me generation that people had become too preoccupied with themselves. Uh, somehow that that seemed to be an outgrowth of the counterculture.
1: Yes, um, I think, uh, in the book, I use the self in, in, in this, in a sense of the sort of Vedanta sense or Jung's sense of the psyche as an interchangeable word for the psyche. So the self as the opposite of the ego. And, and it is a bit, it can be a bit confusing, but there's so many terms for, you know, um, those higher states that, and I traverse such a broad territory that I had to stick to. The self and the ego, but in, certainly in terms of the 80s, um, there was a rapid retreat from uh, from those ideas of uh, um, of of the self or of of the psyche, um, and I think one only has to look at something like you know the shift between uh, a film like um stanley kubrick's space odyssey 2001 which is a kind of this glorious you know celebration of ego dissolution and, and compare that to something like the shining which is flip side of the same coin it's the uh you know the the the, the hellhounds of the uh, unconscious coming for you so you know um i think that the the culture shifted and i think uh that, that sort of, uh, bridge into space that was, was built, um, into, the, into those realms was definitely sort of abandoned. So, so it's sort of sense of it sort of hanging there unfinished. I think it's certainly perhaps where we are at the moment.
0: In my own case, I uh, used a lot of LSD. I identified strongly with the hippie movement and with the counterculture, but it really provoked me to engage in a serious study of consciousness and, and to pursue uh you know, getting a doctoral degree, for example, in parapsychology, of all things. Uh, which, looking back, I think that was a healthy, appropriate way to take all of the inspiration uh, from the counterculture. But, obviously, a, a lot of other people uh, took that inspiration in, in ways that were less productive. I think that the there was a, obviously
1: the 80s is we, we remember it for uh, you know c- consumerism and uh, capitalism and um, and and I think it's remarkable that you know I, in the course of doing the book I, I've had the opportunity to meet people like yourself Jeffrey who, who, who've who've actually made the effort and 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 you know done remarkable sort of journeys of, of integration essentially so um you know, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a number of them. So, for instance, Craig Sams, who I interviewed, who was uh, um, became interested in macrobiotic food, he stayed with it, and you know, he set up a, you know, a wholesale. Um, Organic food distribution service. And in the end, actually, he eventually was responsible for, you know, uh, green and black chocolate, which is, you know, it's not a bad thing. But right across the board, there's, a, there are lots of good stories that there are stories of people going into, you know, the environmental movement or going into psychotherapy, um, and to help people. So I think that there are, there's, 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 there's a, there's a case of, of people becoming selfish, um, and obsessed with, um, you know, uh, just healing themselves in the sense of just making themselves more productive cogs in the machine. But there are uh, marvelous examples, such as yourself, of, of people who've actually run with a baton, so to speak.
0: I guess another very important thread to talk about uh, in terms of the counterculture is sexuality because, uh, of course, the, the birth control pill uh, was introduced uh, to society around the same time in the 1960s. And, and that created a whole new, people called it the sexual revolution, it also got intertwined with, uh, with the counterculture.
1: That's right. And I think there was a lot of um, uh, sort of theoretical, a theoretical background um, which encouraged that, uh, sort of made that sexual liberation you know, theoretically plausible. Um, so um, the uh, the main, uh, the key Freudian Marxists of, of the 60s, uh, Norman O'Brown and uh, Herbert Marcuse, they were very interested in um, Freud's idea of uh, the polymorphous perverse, which is about the, um, the sort of sexuality um, as a child, all our engagement with uh, reality being, Erotic in a sense, and that that eroticism shrinking to uh, a genital engagement. And, and this as well, this idea of the polymorphous perverse was the big idea of was was, was shared by uh, the 60s feminism. So Germaine Greer talks about women as being able to be um, s- sexual on, on many fronts, not just in in a genital front. so 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 sexual repression, um, p- part of that was 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 becoming less genital in a sense. So uh, and and obviously the ideas of Wilhelm Reich are obviously very tied up, it's dissimilar to Freud. But uh, you know there are the sense of it being non-repressive sexuality was was a very big big thing. Um, so uh, yes, sex is uh, you know I, I'm a quite a sort of straight-laced uh, public school boy, and so uh, it took a little bit of uh, um, I had to discipline myself to to actually talk about it
0: sexual mores were changing dramatically in the, in the 1960s. And it, uh, I think it created a big uh, division between the counterculture generation and earlier generations that were much more straight-laced. And, and when they saw the youth, using drugs and engaging in uh, promiscuous sex and listening to rock and roll music and protesting uh, politically and dropping out of school and uh, going into communes. uh, uh, All of those things, I I think they were aghast. Uh, You know, people like my parents just didn't know what to make of it.
1: It must have been terrifying as all I can say as a, as a father of two uh, sort of two t- old teenagers yeah I can I can see it must have been um very shocking um and very worrying I think there's a there's a number of uh, moments in the book where you know one comes across in the research um children ringing home to say Oh, hi, mum. Hi, dad. I've just met a bunch of really nice uh, people. I'm dropping out of college. Don't worry about me sort of conversations or hi, mum. Hi, dad. i am just on the banks of the Ganges. I've just dropped out of Harvard. And, you know, I think that it must have been uh, terrifying for the parents. (laughs)
0: It, it does remind me of a, a famous phrase uh, from one of Bob Dylan's songs. Uh, There's something going on here and you don't know what it is, do you, Mr. Jones? Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah. And, and of course, Dylan himself uh, was a huge uh, provocateur of that whole movement. He
1: was obviously very uh, fascinated by, by Ginsburg and... Um, and I think it's it's not greatly emphasised, but I think he also did a lot of LSD. Um, I, I tend to think of uh, his, um, it, there's a sort of a mystery, as a sort of a shroud covered over his motorcycle accident. I think it was in 67 uh, or maybe it was 68. And I think it. My 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 own personal conjecture is that I think he had a, a very serious uh, nervous breakdown. I think he burnt the candle at both ends. I think he he dissolved. I think I think he's pretty much on the edge to this day, Bob. Um, I think that's where he, where he exists. But um, yeah, I think he's a. He certainly lived the. He was the '60s in in, in many respects. Yes.
0: Well, I think it's largely. You know- his importance as a counterculture figure that led to him receiving the Nobel Prize in literature of of all things. I happened to be in Las Vegas uh, the day that he won that prize. I woke up at four in the morning for some reason and, and went down to my computer to check on the news and, and then I learned, but Dylan had won the Nobel Prize in Literature. And, uh, it dawned on me, wait, Dylan's performing in Las Vegas tonight. And I got tickets and got to see him that very day.
1: That's fantastic. I, I, uh, I saw him in a high park, uh, last summer when, you know, the big crowds were, were thronged. It was a, a remarkable. There was 20,000 people there. We just couldn't imagine it happening today. So it's very tragic I mean obviously the Dylan's lyrics there is a sense of channeling um so uh, you know uh, there's a and uh, all the personalities uh in i know there's a, there was a wonderful trope of uh throwing Dylan parties where everybody would show up as as different people so you might have a Mr Jones like, like you referred to or a sad eyed lady as a lowlands and you people would come as these different characters there's a sense that in a Jungian sense that these are archetypes. Um, so, and, and he, he, here Dylan is someone who is, you know, summoning them forth. Uh, he, I think he was very much viewed in a kind of sense of a shamanism. And I think, uh, although he's, uh, regrettably, I think a lot of people just see him as a sort of a classic rock figure. But uh, there's, a, there's a lot more to it, certainly. A very interesting character, Bob Dylan.
0: Now, uh, and I know I'm jumping around a bit, but it seems to me... Uh, We've got to bring in Aldous Huxley and, and look at his contribution to the counterculture. He, he struck me as a very important figure bridging the counterculture with earlier intellectual traditions.
1: Yes, I mean, uh, the, the with the, the doors of perception, I mean, uh, there's obviously the background of the perennial philosophy and what have you, but with, with the doors of perception, um, there is a sense that, He's actually defining a lot of people's experiences with LSD, and and he brings to it um, all these ideas of, of Eastern philosophy. Um, so uh, you know, in a way, he created a template for people's experiences. I mean, if one looks back at, for instance, um, uh, the, you know, the earliest LSD trips um, and, and the descriptions thereof, um, you'll there's um, you don't find the same sort of template that I think Huxley established. Um, And certainly, you know, the idea of, you know, clearing the doors of perception and that sense of the filter of uh, which he, which he picked up sort of from a, uh, a Cambridge philosophy called Broad via Bergson. I think there's a, you know, those, those are the ideas in which people still to this day understand the psychedelic experience. So he's a he's a fascinating character. His obviously his idea um, was that uh, the, uh, the certainly the psychedelic experience would be should have been a sort of an elite experience. So he he counselled Timothy Leary to uh, to to keep it to uh, you know influencers and the intellectuals and artists. And in fact, it was the intervention of Allen Ginsberg that when Timothy Leary went. Stuff it. We're going to give it to everybody. Uh, And so, uh, but I know Huxley wanted to keep it to an elite cadre, which probably not a great thing. But, you know, perhaps it might have, uh, I think the, 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 the 60s America would have been a different place, certainly.
0: You point out in your book, and I thought this was very interesting, that in Huxley's famous novel, uh, Brave New World, he introduces a drug, I think he calls it Soma, and it's basically used as a pacifier uh, for people in, in a very highly controlled society. They they would take this Soma and then nothing would bother them.
1: Yes, and in, in Heaven and Hell, um, Huxley talks you know unabashedly about you know his uh, his search for a drug that would be better than getting drunk or smoking cigarettes that you know would create a kind of a uh, you know a, a more balanced populace or what have you so you know it was completely within, within the sense of of soma uh, as he describes it in brave new world which is a sort of a, a pacification and 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 i think that i in the book it's one of the reasons why i try not to go to sell, to get too strongly behind LSD, because there is a sense that, you know, with all of these, um, with with drugs, essentially psychedelics, it's it's easy to be optimistic about them, or perhaps over-optimistic. But, um, you know, for instance, William Burroughs was extremely strongly against LSD. Um, It's called, I think it was a terminal sewer. And Kerouac was very much against uh, uh, psilocybin. Uh, he, he he came up with the uh with the wonderful sort of nomic saying uh um, walking on water wasn't built in a day so uh which is his encapsulation of it so uh yeah i think uh you know i try within the book to to to, to be keep a balanced a balanced frame of mind about the whole thing and not be too uh too too much in favor
0: of it well william Burroughs uh Tended to kind of glorify heroin addiction. And uh, as you pointed out earlier, Kerouac was an alcoholic. So uh, they were probably not suitable for the use of LSD. But it's interesting that Huxley referred uh, to Soma. In in Brave New World, because as as you point out in in your book, it's also a term one finds in the ancient Vedic literature of a, a mysterious substance that uh, was used in ancient times in India to achieve states of enlightenment, and uh, there seems to be a connection there with Huxley because his friend Christopher Isherwood uh, uh, became a, a devotee, as I recall, of Sri Ramakrishna. Uh, uh, an Indian saint and, and guru who is sometimes associated with the use of drugs.
1: The conduit between LSD, I mean my, my chapters of LSD and the Vedas pretty much run into each other. Um, I mean, at the end of the tail end of the LSD, there were Lenin and, and Lenin especially, but a number of the people were saying, we want to achieve these highs, without without drugs we want to do it sort of more authentically in terms of you know like with a mantra or through sensory deprivation or in an isolation tank or what have you and um so there was a sort of a backlash but then once you look at the the, the, the vedic traditions i mean uh Patanjali, um he talks about you know herbs um that that, that you use to make you high um uh, and, uh, you know, Neem Karali Baba refers to, uh, you know, that people didn't get high in the process of Hatha Yoga, they were also using herbs. And then um, I think it's uh, Muktananda talks very frankly to Stan Groff about uh, the uh, the use of uh, bang you know uh, marijuana so uh, I think that to say that you know we're not going to get high and we're going to do it the, uh, the the subcontinental way is 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 obviously you know a misjudgment I mean there's a big uh, there's still a, obviously the sort of controversy I think that's probably a bit too strong of, of what actually soma was Stan Groff I think thinks it's a, a creeper like or um, so uh, of that sort of uh, morning glory seeds family. Um, but then some people think it's ephedrine. Um, so some people think it's caffeine, I think. Uh, so I think there's a huge uh, mystery about what it was. I think Groff was uh, promised by Mukdananda to uh, come and he, I think Mukdananda told Stan Groff that there was a, uh, a mountain in the, a village in the mountains where they could come and try uh, they were still using soma, but I think there was no. I don't think he ever made it up there. I think it was. There was no record of that actually happening.
0: Well, another figure associated uh, with uh, the use of LSD, and also you just mentioned John Lilly, and and the uh, sensory deprivation tank, was another impetus that uh, grew out of the counterculture
1: when you start looking at you know what i would call sort of etheric techniques or techniques for establishing or making this connection to what i've referred to as the self i mean there's a probably the most famous and sort of historic technique is this is this is sensory deprivation so um the uh, you know the buddha would would i, I actually uh, in the course of research i went and visited uh, uh, the buddha's cave in the, the dongeshwari hills and you know he would he's the buddha spent six seven years living in a, a cave on his own um, and then you know Milarepa in Tibet sitting on his own in a cave and and this uh, this sense of um, when you remove you know any of these differentiations um, you know remove the sight you remove differentiations of sound and differentiations of, of emotion and I guess in a sense of you remove attachments those things that you know take you away from the sort of here and now I think you uh, put yourself into a state of, uh, you know, an altered state of consciousness, uh, the kind of the fundamental altered state of consciousness. And so, um, you know, uh, LSD uh, is a kind of a, a shortcut to, to those parts. But Lily, um, Lily obviously made that into, you know, a career. You know, he started off in the early uh, sensory deprivation research, it was happening perhaps not uncoincidentally, at the same time as the LSD research. And it was it was being done um, by the military to uh, seek out applications for torture because there was a great sense, there was a great fear that the uh, Chinese um, were breaking American agents and the techniques that they were, were using to do that. So Lilly started out researching um you know, SD in universities, and then this progressed to the, the flotation tank, which is obviously a yet more extreme form of uh, sensory deprivation. Um, and I think that you know, it's absolutely, um, to my mind, unquestionable that you know, you, you enter those those same spaces. I mean, all the documentation around sensory deprivation and people's hallucinations are uh, there's no question about it. Uh, So it's a fascinating era. Lily's a a very unusual um, and strange character.
0: I did have the uh, privilege of interviewing him uh, as well. Back in uh, the the day, it was uh, one of my most interesting interviews. He showed up wearing a, a Davy Crockett coonskin cap.
1: I, Jeffrey, I think I've. I, 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 Now I think about it, I think I've. I have seen that. You, it's remarkable the people you've had on your show, Jeffrey. Extraordinary.
0: Well, uh, it's it's been a very interesting journey, uh, being able to document all of this, Matthew and it's still happening to to my way of thinking the uh, impetus that that began in the 1960s and of course much earlier as you point out uh is still going strong
1: yes that's right and and certainly there's a sense um with the the current uh, um, movements in psychedelia and uh, with uh, the decriminalization of uh, psychedelics that were were sort of around about 1964. Um, And so, you know, my hope is that, you know, we we go to this next stage without the cataclysms that happened um, with uh, Leary's hands.
0: Matthew, I really want to congratulate you on, on your book, Retreat, How the Counterculture Invented Wellness. Uh, I think it's especially from a literary point of view, it's scintillating uh, writing. Uh, it's really vibrant, and uh, it's so well-researched and so thorough, I uh, recommend it very highly. I I think our uh, viewers will enjoy it very much, and uh, I would be very happy to have you back on New Thinking Aloud again, because uh, I know we've just scratched the surface of uh, exploring the uh, various undercurrents and depth that uh, uh, was what we call the counterculture.
1: Well, thank you so much, Jeffrey. It's been it's very kind of you to say, and it's been an absolute pleasure to to come on New
0: Thinking Aloud. I'm very
1: grateful. Thank you.
0: Thank you for being with me, Matthew. And for those of you watching, let me remind you that you can subscribe to our free weekly newsletter by visiting the NewThinkingAllowed.org. That's the website of the New Thinking Allowed Foundation, where you'll also find our searchable database. So, uh, for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.